the flag is offensive to some people and saying American is, is offensive to some people. And you know what? People people just want to be offended, you know, but, but I'm offended by them being offended because guess what? I'm a proud American. We're in America. It's, it's not perfect, but if you don't like it, I'll drive you to Kennedy Airport. I'll give you the ticket and I'll make it a one way. You're listening to Code Red with Secure America Now, the largest national security grassroots army. Tuesday, 9.47 a.m. One of the firemen who I was with was a senior guy, and he just said, you know, we're all dead. And I said, no, Danny, we, we made it. We're, we're going to go back and help. We made it. He goes, no, don't you understand? He says, how do you feel right now? And I said, I, I can't breathe. I feel like I swallowed a box of razor blades and I'm dying. He said, yeah, what do you think that's going to do to us in, in 5, 10, 20 years? You know, first of all, I really am honored to be, to be invited. Um, I'm an Army veteran. I was a New York City cop my first two years, um, almost 22 with fire before I got cancer. I love this country. My, my grandfather came from Denmark with, with $20 uh, in his pocket, and his, his hometown subsequently during World War II was overrun by the Nazis, and it broke his heart that he couldn't get back and fight for it, and you know he was too old. And um, my mom is an immigrant off the boat, 16 years old, came here with a suitcase, so I love this country. I love everything about it. And I'm honored to, to be here to tell you some of the history of the heroes that gave their lives that day and that are still giving their lives. And I just want to say I truly mean it. Thank you for the opportunity. And thanks for what you've been doing for years. Um, I'm well aware of you guys. You know, we're under attack. And if we don't stand up, we're, we're in trouble. So uh, thanks, for, thanks for including me. Welcome to the Code Red Podcast. I am Alan Roth, president of Secure America Now. Our special guest is retired New York City firefighter, Nels Jurgensen. Nels is a veteran of the terrorist attack on 9-11 against the World Trade Center. He was forced to retire from the New York Fire Department because he was diagnosed with leukemia, brought on by his 9-11 work. Nels is the personification of the selfless heroes who gave and endangered their lives to save their fellow Americans. More New York City firefighters died on 9-11 than had died in the line of duty in the entire history of the New York City Fire Department. To keep alive the history of the sacrifices made that tragic day, Nels is part of the 20 for 20 project, which records interviews with people directly impacted by 9-11. And the project has set out to record 20 podcasts about people who served our city and country that fateful day. Nels, thank you for this project and your service. And I would like to begin by asking you to recreate for our listeners your experiences on 9-11. It's an honor to represent um, my beautiful friends, as I call them, 
uh, greatest people that ever walked this earth who, who willingly gave us that they walked in or ran in and they knew that they weren't going to come back. I myself would never call myself a hero at all. I was off duty uh, working my side job delivering home heating oil in Staten Island. And uh, I raced in, went to my firehound 14 in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, gathered up some gear, bus commandeered a city bus. And um, as we were heading over to Brooklyn Bridge, the second tower had come down, killing our friends. So uh, many of us who were on that bus still have the guilt of, we felt that we, we let our guys down and we got there too late. But I thank God for the blessing now every day of the life that I've had for this last 20 years. So I've been honored to get involved with a project called 20 for 20 Podcast. And what we're basically trying to do is it's a tribute podcast uh, in, in 20 episode format. Each week we have a different person that we feature and um, unfortunately, most of the time, it's that hero's surviving family member talking about them. And what we realized was, in the course of the research, uh, half the states in the United States don't even have a prescribed curriculum to teach 9-11 history. And in many, many school districts around the country, it's considered offensive material. It's considered to be insensitive and racist. So there's actually hundreds of school districts in the United States who don't even teach this subject. And I find that a little bit of an outrage. Uh, I think the people who should be insulted are the ones who lost their family members who were murdered that morning. And there was a quote that I came across from you that on 9-11, when you made it down to the World Trade Center site, you commented that breathing the air at ground zero felt like swallowing razor blades. Alan, um, you know, one of the, I guess, descriptions I can give to, you know, people who live in the north and the northeast would probably realize this immediately. It was almost like walking into one of those wind-driven snowstorms and you were blinded by, by just driving snow. And this, this was that day, it was, it was dust. It was the pulverized buildings that were taken down so violently. And the, the physics and the forces involved just pulverized concrete and glass and plastic and unfortunately human beings. They were just pulverized. So what we ended up realizing in the end was we were breathing that pulverized mass in and specifically the concrete and the glass it was it was being ingested and and in down our throats and into our lungs and anybody who was there that day responder recovery worker resident of lower manhattan they they experienced it and you know later on the next morning we were going back to get medical treatment and supplies and whatnot and and one of the firemen who I was with was a senior guy, and he, he just said, you know, we're all dead. And I said, no, Danny, we, we made it. We're, we're going to go back and help. We made it. He goes, no, don't you understand? He says, how do you feel right now? And I said, I, I can't breathe. I feel like I swallowed a box of razor blades and I'm dying. He said, yeah, what do you think that's going to do to us in, in 5, 10, 20 years? And I don't know. I just I couldn't see past that moment, that, that tragic couple days you know back then everything was just sort of a block of days 
Um, you couldn't see past, you know, this week. Um, I remember that morning. I couldn't see past that morning. I mean, there was fighter jets screaming overhead, you know, shooting out over the Brooklyn Bridge and making hard banking turns back. And they were literally flying protective cover missions over us because there was reports of other planes coming in and possible missiles and possible other devices. And, and it was just sort of that we're in America. We're under attack. Your physical protection, the guys coming in off duty, we had no masks. We had really virtually no equipment except for our, our coats and helmets and bunker pants, as we call them. And just felt vulnerable. And um, it kind of brought me back to 1993. Uh, I was at the first bombing. And uh, with my first command at the time, 105 truck, which is down by Barclays Center. And um, we were over at the center then. A wonderful, wonderful guy named Henry Miller was our senior man. And the senior man in a fire company in New York City, they're that guy. They're the, the lieutenant or the captain's right-hand guy who is sort of the den mother over, over everyone else. He keeps them safe. He keeps an eye on them. You know? and, and I was with Hank. And he looked around and the, and the bombing at that point, you know, we were just doing the, the, the cleanup work at the end and we call it overhaul. And he looked around and we saw the crater in the basement in the garage. And he says, you know, it, said, uh, they, they didn't do it right this time. He says, if they blew it up in a corner, they would have dropped these buildings to Canal Street. But he said, make no mistake about it. They're going to come back and they're going to do it right next time. And the sad, cruel irony is Hank Miller was on duty the morning of 9-11, Bill the senior man in 105 truck, and my lieutenant from 114 truck, Dennis Oberg, wonderful, wonderful human being. This proby, as we call our new guys, our rookies are called proby son, was under basically the veil of Hank Miller, Hank being his senior man, to watch over him, and they were killed together in the Trade Center. So Hank, Hank knew it was coming. It's like he prophesied it. And only about 50 yards from them was my childhood best friend, John Chart, mentioned 201. And John and I grew up together in Staten Island. And it, it, it haunted because John was found on Christmas Eve and, and he was laid to rest on, on New Year's Eve. And initially we had a, a memorial mass for him the morning of the flight going down in Rockaway. And strange enough, when I, when I was able to first get home on September 15th, 16th, my wife had said, oh, we have some good news. I'm going to have another baby. And I was touched in my heart. I was, I was very, very happy. But at the same time, I was shrouded in guilt and sadness because I was alive. Well, that's gone. pregnant too, but he's dead. Because at that point in time, after five days, they said anyone not found, we, we assumed that they were, they were dead. And in May of 02, my, my little beautiful daughter, Catherine, was born. And you know, three days before that, John Jr. was born. And John never got to hold his little son. And, I, and I've gotten to watch my beautiful little daughter grow up into a, into a young woman. And comes with a lot of guilt. Um, but yeah, but back then, the way we felt physically, um, you just knew something was going to go wrong. It was just not good. And um, my wife's baby doctor at the time, wonderful guy, Brooklyn guy. And uh, Dr. Adams said to me, he said, look, um, I don't think you should have any more children. This was, this was in the spring of, I had a list of 
the New York Daily News put out an article about all the chemical compounds that we were exposed to. And he pointed at specific ones and he said, this causes certain birth defects. This, this is cancer. This is cancer. This is heart defects for you know babies. And he just went down the list and he looked at me and said, you're going to have cancer. And, and I was just taken back. This was in 2002. And I said, Doc, what do you mean? He said, I'm sorry to tell you this, my friend. He said, I consider you a friend. He said, what you've been exposed to in such quantities, you are all going to have cancer for being down there. And, you know, Dr. Adam wasn't so far off the mark. I mean, now we surpassed the amount of people who've died from 9-11 illnesses directly linked to those toxins. That number has now surpassed the number of souls murdered that morning. We lost 2,977 people on 11, and over 3,000 have now since passed from these illnesses. And John Feel from the Feel Good Foundation is kind enough to build them a memorial out in Long Island in Wisconsin. And it, it memorializes the souls that were there that day who have since passed these horrible, horrible diseases. And out of that crew that night, there was maybe 20 of us who ended up, you know, mustering together down at the World Trade Center site. More than half of us now have cancer. And, and just in that specific crew, and scary enough is a couple of those guys have had three cancers. One guy, Mike, my friend, has had five cancers. And one of my dear friends, Ronnie, who has since passed away, had three horrible cancers. And these are all young men that are now only in their 50s and some of them just into their 50s and some of them just making the 60s but we're all getting taken from it and kind of scary we, we had a fight we we're now thank god covered with our medical bills and if if we are to be killed by the disease our families will, will get our pension but the sad thing is there's many many responders and recovery workers now suffering autoimmune diseases that are severe and they are not covered under the federal legislation. They're not recognized as 9-11 related. And these people are now suffering in silence and their medical bridges being run down. They're, they're just going to be left with nothing and they'll have to pay it out of pocket. So that's, that's tragic. I remember one on the day of um, 9-11 when the attack took place, I remember a woman who came out of the trade center, remember her saying her, her spirits were uplifted by the young men in New York City fire department gear charging up the stairs into the inferno as people were running down the stairs to save their lives. And that image has stayed with me, and I'm sure it's going to stay with me for the rest of my life. And all you guys are not only to be commended, um, but also to be assisted. Um, now that you know you did what you did, you're suffering from what you did um, because of it. But at the same time, we as a community owe it um to the nation to ourselves to actually support you guys you know it, it's it's funny as you speak of that lady describing the the guys who ran in and it was almost 
they had almost an enthusiasm and it wasn't that they were happy of what was going on, but I think they felt blessed and honored to be those people that were going in to save these, these victims of this heinous act. And, you know, I, I, I had the honor of serving as a New York City police officer for almost two years, and, and I'm an Army Reserve and New York Army National Guard veteran, and I actually worked for the city EMS shortly before I got on the police, and then blessed with almost 22 years in the fire department. And I took it as such an honor to serve the citizens of New York, you know, the city and the home of my birth, being a Brooklyn Bay Ridge born guy and Staten Island raised. And my father, who's a wonderful human being, Paul, and he, I still blessed to have him. He's 82. And he was a fireman for 34 years. And he came down with a very, very bad end stage cancer in 1978. And they sent him home to die. And his doctor said, well, look, we can try this experimental medicine. It's vicious, and, but it, it may give you one last chance. And he said, all right, doc, I have three kids. Let's do it. And they, they assigned him to an office job after that. And every two, year, two weeks, every two weeks for four and a half years, this man would leave the office at 12 noon. He was able to take the whole day, but he'd, he'd take the train, the ferry, and the subway from Staten Island and leave at 4.30 in the morning. And every alternate Thursday, he'd get a cancer treatment. And he would take the train and the ferry, you know, the subway back, and he'd meet my mom at the cancer center. And with hours, he'd be violently ill and vomiting. I mean, just beyond sick. And I remember as a 10-year-old boy, I would kneel by his bed and I'd just wipe the vomit off of his, his face and his mouth because he would hurt his breathing. And he couldn't even drink water. And by Saturday, he'd try to get up and he'd try to drink some water. And by Sunday, he'd have some black coffee and, and maybe some tea or a little bit of eggs and toast. And Monday morning, he was back on the, the Staten Island train to the ferry or the subway. And I looked at this man, and he was my hero. And as a younger boy, I remember going to see him in the firehouse in Brooklyn. He worked 172 truck on Bay Parkway, 23rd Avenue. And that was like the height of my childhood with my mom driving us down to the firehouse to see my dad. And there was these giants with mustaches and they were walking around the firehouse and they were smiling and laughing. And I could smell the, the, the smoke from their gear and I could smell the diesel from the trucks and the tires and the grease. And I was like, oh my God, man, I'm going to be like my dad. And, and I did. I ended up like him. I ended up being one of those giants with a mustache. And, and I, I proudly served with those people and they police and fire and they gave lives that day knowingly and willingly. The strange thing is on, on 9-12, it was a happy day. People were lined up along the West Side Highway with banner posters and American flags up a mile on either side greeting us as, as we would be deployed in, in in platoons then for the recovery. Day after day, you would just deploy in, almost like, like a bunch of soldiers marching in down on the West Side Highway. And they would cheer and they'd clap and they'd hug us and they'd cry. And that was cops and medics and firemen. And just this feeling of everybody was American and they were unified. And it didn't matter what color, what religion, what sex. It just didn't make a difference. And then all of a sudden, it just started to fade away. Like, you know, after the holidays, 
uh, it, the, the holidays of 2001 started, we saw it start to slow down. People were getting a little bit of fatigue. And now it was back to the arguments that, you know, always set them off. And now when I look at the country, you know, over 20 years later, and it breaks my heart because we're so divided and we're so segmented on, on issues and everyone's angry and at each other. And, and we're a house divided. And a house divided is a weak house. And our adversaries and our enemies, they see this. They know this. And they've maximized off of it in the past. They wait for that vulnerability and then they strike. And we're foolish enough to be fighting over all of this nonsense that really is irrelevant. Because when it comes down to it, our safety and our security is paramount. We've been so distracted, and I think it's by design, to make us weak. So these doers of evil and our adversaries can just walk right in and do what they want. And I, and I pray that we can get that sentiment and that feeling of 912 back where we were all American. You know, we weren't something hyphenated American, that we were American with a capital A. And, and now the flag is offensive to some people and saying American is, is offensive to some people. And you know what? People, people just want to be offended, you know, but, but I'm offended by them being offended because guess what? I'm a proud American. I'm a generation American. My mom stepped off a plane in Kennedy Airport at 16 years old from Ireland with a suitcase and nothing else, with an address. She my sister who came here just a little while before her. She succeeded. She made it. She did it on her own. And she met my beautiful father who, who, who gave her this American dream, you know, the wife of a fireman, which is a humble, humble existence. And Grandpa Nels used to tear up when he'd hear the Star Spangled Banner. Or he'd see the American flag flying. He knew. He knew freedom. His, his hometown in Denmark was overrun by the Nazis in World War II, and the people were brutalized. And then there's people running around now throwing that Nazi word around so, so randomly. They have no idea what that truly means. So I get offended by all these morons that are offended. We're in America. It's, it's not perfect. But if you don't like it, I'll drive you to Kennedy Airport. I'll give you the ticket and I'll make it a one way. And that's what we're trying to preach with 20 for 20 podcast. We're trying to say, hey, let's be thankful. Let's remember these great people that gave everything that are still sacrificing. And let's recognize our responders who are out there today and our military that are protecting us. These brave people that suit up every day wearing bulletproof vests and flak jackets and Kevlar helmets and fire gear and stethoscopes. You know, the nurses, the doctors, the, the, the firemen, the cops, the soldiers, Marines, sailors, all of them. Can't we thank them once in a while? Can't we be grateful that these people who make hardly any money will, will give up every single one of their toes so you and I can have our today? And, you know, Alan, when you look at these young, beautiful Marines that were, that were slaughtered a few months back and in Afghanistan, and you these beautiful, smiling souls, and the one young lady Marine, two days before she was murdered, was shown holding a little Afghani baby. And she said, I have my dream job in the caption. That beautiful young soul was making about $21,000 a year. And Marines don't work 40 hours, 36 hours. They work 80, 90, 100. 
So, so what was she earning? $6 an hour, $7 an hour. And she was happy. She was smiling because she was grateful for that privilege of, you know, I hate that word when it's used, but we are all privileged to be American. And, and that's what we're, we're trying to bring that message back. Thanks for listening to the Code Red Podcast. Be sure to click subscribe to stay up to date and be the first to hear about our future podcast. You can also find and subscribe to the Code Red Podcast on Podbean, Spotify, Google Play, and YouTube.